Uh, Heavenly Father, as Paul just played, we prayed, we need your word. And so we ask that uh, despite my words sounding uh, fickle and uh, exposing that we are but jars of clay, uh, we have treasure, treasure that you have placed in your word that demands to be heard, demands to be heralded. And through the work of the Holy Spirit and the events of the cross, those who have no eyes to see can see. Those who have no ears to ear to hear can hear. Uh, and those who have no life in their hearts are brought to life through Jesus Christ. We pray that this happens for your glory this morning. We pray it in your name. Amen. All right, so there's a, a famous scene in the 1992 movie, A Few Good Men, where Jack Nicholson's character is standing trial in a court, and he's being cross-examined by Tom Cruise, uh, which is where all of us would love to be. And at one point, Cruise uh, says to Nicholson, kind of as tensions are going, he, he says, I want the truth. And Nicholson famously replies in a way that my throat will not allow me to say, you can't handle the truth. And our study through the book of Luke this morning includes Jesus standing trial against his own prosecutors. And the sentiment is the same. He's making it clear that those who are bringing charges against him cannot handle the truth. Though it's not in rage, as Nicholson's character was, or with increasing words, it's actually with his silence and his submission, his poised affirmations of truth, that the stunning nature of what Jesus claims to be is brought to our attention today. Jesus in our text is accused of being three things, the Christ, the Son of God, and King of the Jews. And he's going to affirm all of those realities for which he is on trial. This is the equivalent of someone saying, did you kill that person? Did you steal that diamond? And the person who's on trial saying, yes, I did. And yet Jesus will go to the cross because the people do not believe the claim, not because they believe it to be true. They think he's false. And it's the falsity of that that is staggering for us today. And this is important for us because we too, whether you are a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, we have the problem of staring the truth of Jesus straight in the eyes and responding the right way, according to our own heart. Perhaps we put him on the cross, but we respond the right way for the wrong reasons. Jesus did need to go to the cross. In that sense, it was the right thing. But from our perspective, it was for the wrong reasons. And we too can often respond to the truth of Jesus in a way that seems most consistent with us, but have it be for the wrong purpose. You see, Jesus was going to be um, crucified for who he claimed to be. But from a divine perspective, it is precisely because Jesus is the Christ, the King, and the Son of God that he's going to the cross. And that means if we want to respond rightly, we must wrestle honestly with the claims of Jesus. And that's really the big point this morning that we're going to see. Our main point today is this, that Jesus was everything he claimed to be. Believe it. At the end of the day, that's the only option we have. And so we're going to unpack this uh, seemingly dark passage, and we're going to pull out some good news by focusing on three things. First, we're going to see the names and claims of Jesus. And then we're going to see three responses to Jesus's claims. And lastly, We'll see two reconciliations, and I hope by God's grace we will get through all of those. So uh, let's dive in. Our passage last week focused on Jesus's trial uh, in the courtyard of the high priest's house, but now Luke is changing the camera and bringing our attention to what is happening inside the high priest's house as it relates to Jesus's trial. 
And we see in verse 30, 63 through 65 that Jesus was being mistreated throughout the night by the temple guards. He's being beaten. He's being mocked. And this blasphemous display of violence uh, was happening because of the due process system of the day. You see, in order for the Jews to kill Jesus, Jesus had to be condemned to death by Rome. And so in order for Jesus to get to Rome, he had to make his way up through the Jewish courts. That's the Sanhedrin or the council, depending upon your Bible translation here. The only problem was that in the haste they took to arrest Jesus at night, the law prohibited the Sanhedrin from gathering and assembling during the day for this very purpose. Didn't want them to have some sort of miscarriage of justice, some sneaking in of uh, uh, some sort of ingest uh, trial. And so they wait throughout the night until the first light of day, until the earliest possible morning to gather this council together and then to begin Jesus's proper trials. And it's these temple officials that were introduced here in the beginning of our passage that are going to act as the prosecutors in each of these three courts. Uh, First in the Sanhedrin, second before Pilate, and then lastly uh, before Herod, which is kind of seen as the same uh, court case as Pilate in an official sense. And so their, their case that these Jewish priests and officials are bringing hinges on who Jesus claims to be. And this is of central importance for our first point today. These are the three names and claims of Jesus. The three names and claims of Jesus. If you have your Bibles open, you'll notice these three. Perhaps you did when Paul read it earlier. If you look at verse 67, they ask if Jesus is the Christ. In verse 70, they ask if Jesus is the Son of God. And in chapter 23, verse 3, Pilate asks if he is king of the Jews. And this is important for us to see because in the end, it's our view of Jesus, not our view of ourselves, which is the most significant perspective in our understanding of the gospel. Who do you think Jesus claimed to be? We have to wrestle with who we are. But from a biblical perspective, there's a more important decision you need to make, and that is who is Jesus? What do you think it means if Jesus is all these things in relation to who you are? You see, it's easy, especially in our postmodern world, to place ourselves and our understanding of ourselves at the center of our view of the gospel and our view of Jesus. Uh, One musician wrote a song uh, where he described the modern tendency to rewrite Jesus's message with us at the center instead of Christ at the center. He says this, he summarizes the message saying, we are star stuff and baby, we are enough. And the kingdom of heaven is within And the capital U universe is here to guide us toward our own inner light. He goes on to say, well, okay. But just saying that never got anyone crucified. In other words, if all Jesus came to be was your best friend who gives you an emotional butt slap so you can be all you can be, then that doesn't get people crucified. If Jesus came to remind you that you have your own inner light and that all things work together for good, why in the world would we find that offensive enough to crucify him? That kind of messaging offends no one. You see, contrary to some theologians or spiritual talkers you might hear today, Jesus was not benign. He was not neutral. Gracious, yes. Kind, yes. But non-offensive, no. The claims of Jesus leave little room for anyone except Jesus to be the center of not only your life, but of the whole world. There's a profound weight in all these names that Jesus is standing trial for. And that's because what the Jews will show us is that these names are not merely names. They're claims. When I tell my kid, I'm your father, 
I'm not merely just identifying myself to them as if they forgot. When I'm on the basketball court and I dunk on your face and say, I'm your daddy, right? It's not an aspect of me just telling you who I am. <laughs> That's happened many times. Um, uh, it's, it's trying to communicate that because of who I am, you have a right relationship and right response to it. There's obligations and realities connected to it. And it's the arrogance of these claims and of their assumptions that are so volatile that lead these men to want Jesus to be crucified. So what are these claims? Is Jesus offensive to us in the right ways? And so first we see what does it mean to be the Christ? This is what we see in verse 67. The Christ was just a Greek word for the Hebrew title of the Messiah or the anointed. In the Old Testament, there are many people who were called the Lord's anointed, often to fulfill a specific task. But it was also held out in passages like Psalm 2 that there was the anointed or the Messiah. There was the Christ to whom everyone was looking for. And so if Jesus was the Christ, he's not claiming to be another prophet. He's claiming to be the prophet, the anointed one, for whom the whole of the Jewish nation ought to look to for singular and exclusive hope. They were to set their eyes on this Messiah. And the priests assumed that Jesus might have wandered around the countryside saying he's the Christ, but when he stands trial for court, when his life is on the line, certainly he would back down from this claim. He would want to distance himself from it. But he actually doubles down. Look at what Jesus says when they demand an answer in verses 67 and 69. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so Jesus' answer is significant for two reasons. First, he points out the continued blindness of the scribes to actually hear what Jesus has taught repeatedly in his ministry. Jesus is not introducing new doctrine here. He's taught this the whole time, and they've been unwilling to hear. But then second, he ties his identity as the Messiah, who was to be understood as being kind of just this exclusively human figure, a special human. But he ties that claim to being the son of man, which was a role that the Jews understood as a divine position, coming from Daniel chapter 7. To be the son of man, according to Jesus, was to also be the son of God. It was to be divine. And this is the second claim that the Jews now want clarity on. In verse 70, they say this. They say, are you the son of God then? To be the son of man is to be the son of God. Jesus responds saying, you say that I am. Today that might sound weird to us. We would certainly not answer that way in our modern world. But what's clear is you notice how he's not dodging the answer because we could see how the scribes and the chief priests respond. They respond They take this as a clear affirmation. They say, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. Perhaps you've heard some modern scholar claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. If you have, that's a scholarly way to say that they've never read the Gospels, which is unique if you want to flaunt that. Because here, what are these men saying besides the fact that Jesus in saying this is claiming to be God? He is not merely the human Messiah. He is the divine son of God. He shares essence with Yahweh himself. To be the son of God was to be God. And lastly, Pilate, he inquires on a similar but different line of significance. 
These men are ultimately asking about spiritual things, but Pilate wants to focus on things that are deeply practical, things that matter in the real world. And this is where thirdly, he asks in 23 verse two, are you king of the Jews? To which Jesus answered the same way, you have said so, and he's affirming it. So Pilate was less concerned about the spiritual realities of Jesus, how he fleshed out in the Jewish temple system. What he wanted to know is who Jesus claimed to be in the real world, the political world, in the place where things really matter. And so if we zoom out and look at all three of these names and claims, it's to say in summary that if Jesus is the Christ, he is to be followed. If Jesus is the son of God, he is to be worshiped. And if Jesus is the king, he is to be obeyed in visible, practical, tangible ways, discernible in our world. It's been said that to confess the name Jesus Christ is actually to confess the claim Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is who he's claiming to be and who the cross proves that he really is. And so when you pray, we've sang today many of these words. When you pray to Jesus Christ, when you sing of Christ the King, when you... uh, do your devotions and encounter Jesus as God, do you understand the implications of what those claims mean on you? It's not passive. It's not neutral. It shouldn't give us first in our flesh a warm, fuzzy feeling because it demands that Christ is treated in a way that we often only want to treat ourselves. It means that if he is the Christ, he has atoned for our sin and he has called us not to live for our own purpose, but he has called us to join him in his mission to save his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We follow him with all of our life. If Jesus is the son of God, then he is worthy of all of our worship. We lay down our own aspirations for our own glory. We repent of such idolatry and we realize our greatest good is in glorifying this God. And it means that if Jesus is king, we are to submit the whole of our lives to him. And that like just how a citizen from Mozambique who comes here today and tries to live under those same rules and with those same cultures, they would be distinct in this world. We, if Christ is our king, are to be visibly distinct in this world, even if it's like we looked at last week, a sort of dual citizenship, that we live here, but we belong there. It's practical. It's not merely spiritual. It's inbreaking and observable. And so, since I don't have many words today, I'm going to give you words to talk about afterwards. When you go to lunch with someone after church, when you're sitting around your dinner table or your lunch table with your roommates, why don't you ask two questions? Well, you first to ask, what would we lose if Jesus were not one of these? If Jesus were just God, not the anointed man, If Jesus were just a king and not God, what would we lose? And then secondly, I want to ask what it looks like in your own life. What does it look like to have a God who is king, God, and Messiah? And this is important because it's an intellectual hypothetical, but it's actually impossible. Jesus is not saying, pick one of these and relate to me. 
was really popular when I was coming of age to have what's called lordship theology. Like that we, you know, confess Christ as Savior, but at some point we confess Christ as Lord. You, you can't have one or the other. He's affirming all three of these. The claims of the gospel are a zero-sum game. You either believe it and you follow him, worship him, and obey him, even in a sinful world, or you reject it. As C.S. Lewis once said, to accept the claims of Christ and to encounter them is to either view Jesus as liar, as lunatic, or he's Lord. More fittingly, for our passage today, one theologian says this. He says, with regard to Jesus, there are only two possible modes of behavior. Either to believe that in him, God encounters us, or to nail him to the cross as a blasphemer. There is no third way. It's black and white. These are the choices. Believe the truth and accept it or deny the truth and crucify Christ. But we in our own spiritual darkness, like Lloyd Gross, encounter that and we still look and say, so you're saying there's a chance. Perhaps we'll look at this and think that we can find that third way. We can find an alternative way of responding to the truth. And we see those similar attempts at compromise in our passage today. And this is going to be our second point. This is where we're going to see three responses to Jesus' claim. And I'm going to take a tea break. If any of you know me, you know I hate tea. This is how much I love all of you, okay? Um, <coughs> uh, so... In this text, we see everyone encountering Jesus, but not just Jesus. They're actually discovering and encountering true claims about Jesus, but they're all responding to that same truth presentation that they are asking and that Christ is confirming. They're responding to it in broken, sinful ways. And so what's going on in each of these hearts? Because in looking at their hearts, we can often see how our own hearts respond differently. And this helps us for a number of reasons. First, it gives us the ability to repent of it. And second, it helps us understand how those who are trying to disciple are wrestling through the claims of Christ, and we can help them see that and repent and believe Jesus at his word. So first, we're going to focus on the Jews. And so what is the heart posture of the Jews, their response? Well, they come with a sort of intellectual arrogance. You see, the scribes and the priests <clears throat> knew the Old Testament. They studied it. They memorized it. They taught it. They knew with explicit detail what it meant for Jesus to claim to be the Christ, the Son of Man, and the Son of God, and the King of the Jews. But they had a problem here, didn't they? When Jesus came and confirmed all of those things, they refused to believe it. They refused to accept that he could be those things because they knew better. In John 5, Jesus says to the Jews, he says, you say you want to hear the Father's word. Yet here I am, the son of the father who has been sent to give you the word, and you're refusing to listen to me? He says in verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. You see, there's a difference between wanting to know what Jesus says and wanting to believe what Jesus says. Say that again. There's a difference between wanting to know what Jesus or the Bible says and wanting to obey what Jesus or the Bible says. Both carry the responsibility of intellect and, and thinking and critical thought, but one adds to it something that Jesus has been harping on this whole gospel. 
and that is the humility of faith. You see, the whole history of the church has been summarized as faith-seeking understanding. We want to study scripture. We want to interpret it. We want to look at the claims the Bible says about itself so that we might apply our faith accurately, intimately, and visibly. That is to say, so that at the end of it, we might better serve Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, and the King. But let us be careful in examining our own hearts that faith-seeking understanding does not turn into understanding as a means of faith. That we only believe what we are able to understand and what makes sense to our own minds. If you only believe what you are able to understand and you are able to discern, you are not believing God, you're believing yourself. It is to place yourself at the center of your entire worldview and think that you alone have the objective perspective on truth. But the Bible says that this God has spoken and that he is the one who interprets our truth, that we submit ourselves to his word. You see, it's common in churches like ours to be eager to read old dead authors and to study theology, both of which are great. But if we're studying the God of the Bible, the knowledge about him means nothing if we are not willing to obey him. Because if this is God's own revelation, then, and if what this God says about himself is true, then when we discover it, we must obey it. To not obey it is to actually jettison everything we claim God is saying about himself as false. If he is a mere man, then yeah, we can lord ourselves over it. But if he is God, when we encounter tensions in the text, tensions in our own heart, we don't put him on the stand, we put our own hearts on the stand. We submit ourselves to him instead of submitting him to ourselves. And that's what these men did. And it's what we do almost daily in small ways in the name of following Jesus and reading the scriptures. God didn't match up with what they thought he would look like. And instead of humbling themselves, they lorded their own desires, their own expectations over the clear and explicit teachings of God, even when Jesus himself was there in the flesh saying, you have said so. I am all you claim to be. And what's interesting is we see here what happens when you give up God as the center of your truth. We quickly give up all truth. These men were so concerned with truth, and yet what do they do with Pilate? They willingly present lies to him. Remember a few weeks ago, Jesus just told the Jews to file with TurboTax, like give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But what do they go to Pilate saying in verse 2? We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. They give a bold-faced lie to Pilate. They wanted Jesus dead so bad that in the name of truth, they give false truths. And they do this because they know that Pilate ultimately doesn't care about who Jesus is in relationship to Old Testament scriptures. And this is where we see Pilate's response of apathetic observations. Luke summarizes, he, he shortens what the other Bibles or the other Gospels give in more detail. And he does this and just kind of shows the, the brevity at which Pilate comes to his conclusion. Listen to verses three through seven. Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. 
We'll see how that ends next week. But there are urgent saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So a bit of cultural background here uh, is helpful for us to really understand what's happening. Pilate did not normally live in Jerusalem. He was an appointed Roman governor, uh, and he, uh, archaeologists have found a house with his inscription just north in Israel in a town called Caesarea. It's a beautiful seaside town. Uh, and, but because of the nature of the Passover uh, and the history of Jewish revolts, Pilate was forced to kind of leave his destination VRBO house up on the sea and come into the stinky, crammed sweat pot of Jerusalem during the Passover so that he could be there with the authority of Rome in case the Jews tried to do something dumb. And so Pilate hears that Jesus might, in fact, be trying to do something dumb. He's accused of leading an insurrection, stirring people up, telling people to not give taxes to Rome, things that he would be keenly interested in. So what does he do? Well, Luke tells us he asks Jesus if he's king of the Jews. And Jesus says in the same affirmation he gives to the chief priest, he says, you have said so. And what does Pilate do? He quickly says, I find no guilt in this man. Now, why do you think he was able to come to that conclusion with such speed and clarity? It's probably because Pilate looks at Jesus, bloodied, silent, bound, mocked. He looks for Jesus' followers, none of whom can be found, all of them scattered to the wind because of servant girls and seeming opposition. And he came to the same conclusion you might come. Some king. What kind of kingdom is this? He doesn't look like a king. His followers don't appear to have any sort of real implications in this world. And how easy is it for us to hear the claims of the gospel, but then to look at the world, to look at the church, look at our own lives and say, that doesn't seem that great. I've seen what great things look like. That doesn't look like it. You see, remember the issue of Jesus' claim to be king and why Pilate was concerned is that Jesus was claiming to have a real, physical, tangible, immediate application in that world. And he looked at what he saw and he said, this has no ramifications here. This is empty of everything human greatness and power and peace and politic is meant to embody. How easy it for us in practice, for those who we've shared the gospel with, to look at the hope of the gospel and to come to a similar conclusion. To say, I don't think so. It doesn't look real. To live is Christ and to die is gain? No, thank you. Dying seems not gaining. To be humbled is to be made great? I don't think so. To surrender my free time, my finances, my sex life, my friends, to a king I can't see, for a kingdom that is not fully here? I don't think that is at all what I need right now. <laughs> thank you very much. And see, for these people, it's not necessarily that they respond with a sort of visceral hate towards, towards Christianity. In fact, maybe you've met these people. Like, I don't really care what you believe. That sounds great. And yet, they dismiss it because it just seems impractical. 
it seems like, sure, you could affirm that, but when you want to live in the real world, then come and pick up our power politics and our standards of greatness. And so like Pilate, what we often do is we try to pass off our own responsibility to make a decision, and we punt it to somebody else. That's what Pilate did. He didn't want to deal with this, and as soon as he found out that Jesus was from Galilee, he said, hey, it just so happens Herod's in town. I'm going to make Herod make a decision on this. I could send it to Herod, Herod will clean it up, and I could just wash my hands and never have to really respond with any sort of seriousness to these claims. But as we saw last week, half-heartedness often betrays hard-heartedness. And even though Pilate thought he found a way to avoid making a decision, as we will see next week, the crowds forced his hand and he made a decision. There are no agnostics in the end. You will come to a conclusion about who Jesus claims to be. But having sent Jesus to Herod, we now see the third response. And this is the response of dangerous curiosity. And my second Whereas Pilate couldn't care less about Jesus, Herod is actually interested in him. We see this in verses 9 through 11. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned it at some length, but he, that's Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, that they're following him the whole time. And Herod and with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So here, Herod, unlike, here we see how we need to question our own hearts. We find ourselves in any of these three. Unlike the Jews who are eager to condemn him, unlike Pilate who is apathetic, here Herod is genuinely interested. He's keen to see what's going on here. He was a religious voyeur. He likes to consider the potentials of maybe all truth. He was quite interested in the miracles of Jesus. And he was hoping that he would get to see one of those great parlor tricks in person. Hey, do the thing with the wine. Remember the raising of the dead? That seemed pretty cool. Maybe you could just walk across my, I don't know if Pilate had a pond. Seems like some, or Herod. It sounds like something Herod should have. He had a big palace there. Maybe just walk across that water, like do a little thing for me. And so he was glad to have him. You can imagine Pilate, or Herod, you know, he's, he's the king of the Jews. He's kind of this Roman compromise between the Jewish people and the realities of Rome. He's like, I'm going to ask Jesus. He's on trial. I'm in a position of authority. Jesus will certainly do what I want. He'll give me what I want. I'll give him what he wants. I'll let him go. I'll fight for his defense. You know, pull a rabbit out of the hat, and we'll all go our merry way. But Jesus was not interested in being Pilate's entertainment. Not sure how many of you were taught this oddly dark song growing up. I'm bringing home a baby bumblebee. Won't my mommy be so proud of me? I'm bringing home a baby bumblebee. Ouch. He stung me. And then what do we do? I'm squishing up my baby bumblebee. (laughs) Won't my mommy be so proud of me? You see, Herod took in a bumblebee, and it pricked him. It pricked his pride. It pricked his comfort. His authority was challenged and his curiosity got ugly. Like a spurned lover or a petulant child when he didn't get what he wanted, he had no use for Jesus and the true reality that was behind all of his seemingly interested optimism revealed the depravity of his heart and the violence therein. 
I hope there are people in here today who are curious on the claims of the gospel. As a church, we want to grow not merely by Christians coming in, but by making Christians and bringing them in. So if you're here today, I am so glad you're here. But make no mistake, at some point you will get serious about that which right now you might be curious. There's no third way. If Jesus is for you, someone who you hope will be your genie in a bottle, will get you the dating relationship, the financial security, or the job you've always wanted, then you will respond to him at some point seriously. He will prick you. And you will do one of two things. You will either submit your foolish misunderstanding of yourself, thinking that you are Lord over the Lord, and you will repent, and you will align all of your thoughts, your hearts, and your actions to him who is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and the King. Or he will prick you, and you will treat him with contempt, mock him, and send him away as if you are the judge over him. See, Herod feels really big about himself. He knows this kind of mocking gesture because Herod, or Herod, if anyone was concerned about Jesus being king of the Jews, it would be Herod who was king of the Jews. And so it was kind of like this like snobby move. He robes Jesus in royal robes and sends him away, having beaten him. And we don't hear much more about Herod in the book of Luke, but in the book of Acts, Luke picks up Herod's narrative. And in chapter 22, Herod puts on his own robes his royal robes, the very ones he perhaps threw on Jesus from his closet in order to mock him. And Herod goes up and he gives a speech. And the people said, this is the voice of a God and not a man. And then Luke records for us what happens next. In verses 23 and 24, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Some of you are glad to be in here today, but perhaps for the wrong reasons. Maybe you're hoping for entertainment, for some sort of intellectual repartee, maybe just for community. Maybe you're here looking for a spouse. You don't need a sign, you need a savior. You need one who will atone for your sins. Your story ends, all of our story ends, as Herod does. We will die, but the word of the Lord increases and is multiplied. So give glory to God. Not to your gratification. Not to your own intellectual hubris. Not to your own passions and dreams, but make Christ your passion and your dreams. And notice how these three trials conclude. Verse 12, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with one another. Now, this is a really interesting conclusion by Luke because let's just you know, step back and look at everything that's going on in this text. Here we have a riotous mob making false allegations about false crimes, chanting for the murder of the Son of God. They're about to crucify him and Luke gets all warm and fuzzy. <laughs> Isn't this great? Look at the friendships that are made here. And here's our last point. Two reconciliations. Two reconciliations. 
The cross always brings unity. We just must be mindful of that which it unites us to. These men all encountered the truth claims of God, but they did so through the eyes of fallen humanity. And what did that do at the end? It turned them not to greater praise of God, but greater fellowship with one another. And the nature of this fellowship is not good. Pilate and Herod had been at enmity with one another because there was real enmity between the Jewish state and Rome. Earlier in Luke, we read that Pilate had killed Galileans. When he came into Jerusalem, to flaunt his own authority. He was barbaric and violent. We'll talk more about that next week. So though they are made friends, what friendship is this? What unity is this? What best friend goal is this? You see, the world will love to take those who think they have responded ultimately to the cross, and they will love to welcome you back into faithful fellowship. They will remind you of all we have in common with them. Look at this great kingdom. Look at this great human hope. Look at this great life. But these kind of friends are no friends at all. It doesn't solve the real tension between Herod and Pilate, and it doesn't solve the real tension you have in your own heart. You don't need to be reconciled to the world. We need to be reconciled. We need to be made friends with God. The problem is, is that we put God on the cross. Like the soldiers, we mock Jesus, we consider his truth claims, and we reject it. We ask him to prophesy, and we assume his silence to our prayers, his silence to our needs is a sign that he is not God. Yet all the while, when Jesus is being mocked to prophesy what is happening, the very predictions of Jesus are coming true that he would be handed over and crucified. It comes on the heels of him predicting the, the threefold denial and falling away of Peter. Our sins demand Jesus to die. You see, when Jesus said that he would sit in power at the right hand of God, he is telling them, as part of why they get so mad, he's saying that one day the roles will be switched. One day Jesus will cross-examine us. One day we will be on the stand and none of us are in a Pilate's jurisdiction today. Pilate died. Unless you have a keen awareness of Christian history, you probably don't even care. Herod's jurisdiction, even less so. Rome, the most powerful empire the world has perhaps ever known. It's nice to learn about. They make kind of fun movies. There's no implication on your life. But all of us are under God's jurisdiction. There is no period of time wherein you can escape that reality. And brothers and sisters, we have not made friends in that court. Consider all that happened to Jesus here. And notice how Luke doesn't just tell us the actions of these sinners. It tells us the object of those actions. You see, they didn't just mock. They mocked him. They didn't just beat. They beat him. They blindfolded him. They blasphemed him. They accused him. They treated him with contempt. They mocked him. They arrayed him in humili humiliating attire. And in a few moments, they will call to crucify him. This might seem like their problem, but the Bible tells us this is our problem. 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn witnessed the atrocities of humanity in the USSR. And listen to what he says. He says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. We are the problem. We have the same evil in us. We don't need help becoming more friends with each other. We need help being reconciled to the Jesus who we have mistreated and condemned to die. John Calvin makes this glorious turn when he says it this way. He says, according to the flesh, it was disgraceful that the Son of God should be seized, bound, and made a prisoner. But when we reflect that by his chains we are loosed from the very tyranny of the devil and from the condemnation in which we were once involved before God, not only is the stumbling block removed out of the way, but in the place of it, there comes an admiration of boundless grace. You see, from our perspective, for those who wish to reject Jesus, the cross is the right thing. We want him dead for the wrong reasons because we want nothing to do with him. From the divine perspective, the cross was the wrong thing. That the son of God should suffer? That God would take on human flesh and be subjected to such humiliation? No. But it was the wrong thing for all the right reasons. That we might be saved by him who came and was crucified by blind sinners so that blind sinners might see. Jesus was not killed because he claimed to be God. Jesus was killed because he was God, and we needed help to see it. Isaiah 53, 7 speaks of Jesus prophetically saying this. He says, he was oppressed, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. You see, Jesus, because Jesus was the Christ, because he was the son of God, because he was the one true king, he chose not to open his mouth in his defense so that he might be put on the cross in your defense. You see, he came so that the world would see who he claimed to be and not sent him to the cross because he's wrong, but sent him to the cross because he's right that we need him to be our Messiah. We need God to pay the penalty for our sins if we are to be saved, and we need our hearts remade for a new kingdom through faith. And the result of that is that we are made friends with God. But brothers and sisters, we cannot come to that friendship and that reconciling relationship apart through humbling ourselves and taking Jesus' claims at face value and do not think that is a trivial, easy thing to do. And so as we sit under the weight of this today, I pray you sit under the weight of Christ's claims. You either take that for the first time or you ask Christ to help you apply that in more and more places so that we might see his truth and his beauty in every area of our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you give us eyes to see the same truths that all of us are born rejecting. We thank you for the scandal of the cross. We thank you that on the cross, in, in a thing that humanity and even our own hearts look at and says this cannot be the God, this cannot be for our good, that it's actually on the cross you prove that you are God and you have worked good 
for those who have caused you harm. Lord, I pray that we as a people will make no distinction in our hearts of who Christ claims to be and the names we simply apply to the figurehead of our religion. May our lives be distinct and our worship be distinct because Christ is distinct.